pastor here, and uh, we do, um, I do a lot of stuff with discipleship church-wide, and I also lead our young adult ministry, of which Shift is a part, and we do this every single week because uh, reading scripture is important, but it's really hard to do on your own, and so we kind of gather together and we read it, and um, I try to put it in context, and I get real geeky about it, so hopefully that uh, in some way translates to you guys, and um, hopefully uh, you leave here maybe knowing a little bit more about Scripture than when you came. Um, there are lots of ways to get involved, and so we really are glad you're here, but we also hope that you come to worship here on Sunday mornings. There's a card in the back that gives you the five different ways that you can worship through Highland Park. Um, we have small groups. There are Sunday morning classes. We do a mission project every single month with all young adults. Um, so there's a ton of ways that you can plug in and kind of get involved and really make this your church family. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me afterwards. Um, we go to dinner every week after shift. And so this week we're going to, did anybody check Twitter or Facebook? Cabana. Wrong. <laughs> we have way higher standards than that. <laughs> we're going to Twisted Root on SMU Boulevard. So really good burgers um, if you want to join us afterwards. We'll see you there. Um, so in order to get started tonight, we're in the book of Acts. And what I wanted to do was um, kind of set up the scene for you a little bit, and then I want to read something that I think um, maybe represents, I guess, read something that would be maybe what some of the early church leaders would have felt and would have expressed if they, if they had the words for it, I guess. Um, so Acts is the second part of a story that began in the Gospel of Luke. It was written by the same person as the uh, Gospel of Luke, and it really is the story of the mission and the will and the um, activity of God in this world. And the way that it started in Luke was it started with before, actually, the birth of Christ. Um, and we heard about the promises and we heard about expectations of the people, and then Christ was born, God in the world, and Christ grew and lived and taught and teached teached, oh my gosh, preached, and okay, that's another thing. Let me just go ahead and say I'm pregnant, y'all, so we're due in August. It's very exciting, glory be, but it makes you forget things all the time, so um, excuse me. He, Jesus, preached and teached and loved and healed and fed and all sorts of wonderful things, and then he died, and everybody thought the story was over, but then he rose from the dead, and we as readers and they as disciples understood the full power of the Savior. They understood the full power of the Messiah when they encountered the risen Christ. And so the story in Acts is the continuation of that story. After Christ was raised, how were the disciples, how were the apostles, the followers of Christ, those people who knew the living Christ and then see, have, you know, encountered the risen Christ, how were they going to continue Christ's message in the world. So as much as this story is the story, the book of Acts is the story of the early church, the main character is still Christ. That is absolutely who and, and what is going on in this book. Um, so it's the early church. It's the story of the early church. And so the apostles and the uh, friends of Christ, all the, the people who had been around Christ and who witnessed the risen Christ, after he ascends, he says, okay, go. Go and continue my mission in the world to the Gentiles in Jerusalem and then all the areas, the entire 
every corner of the earth, the entire world, go and continue my mission to these people. And so it's the story of how they do that. But they're kind of left trying to figure it out for themselves, except they're really not on their own because the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so they're guided by the Holy Spirit of God. But they still have to figure out a lot of stuff. They have a lot of um, disagreements about how to things should go in, in kind of internally. Then they have disagreements with people on the outside of the new uh, faith and practices who aren't really sure what they're doing. And then they have to figure out their structure and their system and how they're going to be organized. And if there's going to be this um, comprehensive and kind of universal, regular understanding of what it means to be a Christian and to be a follower of Christ. And so they have to work out so many things. And all, there's all this tension in the book of Acts. We hear story after story that kind of, you know, it gives us these details. But what it's really telling us is that there's tension within the new community and between the new community and those on the outside. And it's about figuring out then how we're supposed to survive, how we're supposed to actually be followers of Christ with one another when we come from so many different places and we have all this tension. In particular, there's tension um, about how, well, let me just start it this way. So basically, the new Christians are Jewish. That's what they are. They're Jewish, and so they practice their faith like good Jews. They just believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah that all Jews are waiting for. So every Jew is waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled in a Savior, in a Messiah. And there was a group of Jews who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The Messiah was Jesus Christ, this guy named Jesus. And so that, they were Jews, and they practiced, and they went to synagogue, and they, um, you know, practiced the law, and they were good Jews who just believed in Christ as the Messiah. And then you have people, other Jews, who don't believe that the Messiah was Christ. And so all of a sudden, there's tension between the Jews that do believe that Christ was the Messiah and the Jews that don't. And there was persecution that went on, and they would run each other out of town, and they would, um, mainly the Jews would run the their Christians out of town. Um, and this was something that happened time after time after again. Into every town that the Christian missionaries would go into, they would encounter the Jews of that town. And then some Jews would become believers, and some Jews wouldn't, but... Without fail, pretty much all the time, the Jews that became believers, you know, the missionaries themselves, would get run out by the Jews who weren't. So there is tension there, and we see that, that ha- pattern happening over and over and over again. Then there's also tension between um, the Jews and the Gentiles, because Jews were the first folks to hear about this good news of Christ, but the Gentiles, the non-Jews, you know, they were also hearing about this good news, and they also wanted to be a part. But being a part of You know, having faith in Jesus Christ, being a part of um, the movement, really meant that you were a part of the community. There was no such thing as saying, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in God, and I want to follow him like this, but I'm not into organized religion. I mean, there was no such thing as that. You had to be connected to the community, because that's what it meant to be a follower of Christ, is to be connected to this Christian community. And so you have these Jews who, remember, follow the laws, about eating and clothes and what kind of um, food you're allowed to have and you know how your the ritualistic behaviors around eating all sorts of things and then you have Gentiles who are considered by the Jews pagans and and unclean and not 
you know, fit to be eaten with, that you can't eat with them, you can't hang out with them, like, it's just wrong. And now all of a sudden they're, like, in the same community and they're supposed to live and function and love each other and support each other like Christ called them to. So there's tension there. And they have to figure some things out. So one of the things that they figured out was, well, we're, are we, what are we going to require of the Gentiles? Are we going to require that they um, care, fulfill all the 613 laws that we as Jews have to fulfill? And they debated about it, and they argued about it, and like all the leaders of kind of different, different churches came together in Jerusalem, and they talked about it. And they decided, no, that's okay. They only have to fulfill four laws, and the good news is that one of them is not circumcision, because that was the issue. They were going to make all the Gentiles be circumcised if they were going to be Christians. They nixed that, which is good. So as the word spreads, as the missionaries move through kind of this area, um, they, they encounter this tension, but the, the purpose of this book is to show us how, in spite of the tensions they encounter, the word of God spreads, because that is the mission. That is the goal of God, is to give good news to the entire world. And that's what these church um, leaders did at the time, and that's what we're still called to do today. So I want to, um, thinking in, the, in light of the tension that, the leaders in Acts felt. I think in light of the, I mean, they were, they were killed, they were run out of town, um, they had to debate and argue and try to figure out what was going on. Um, they were killed, did I say that? Like, that's a big deal. Like, we don't ever think about that. But they were killed because of what they believed. And I came across this song, and you've probably heard it before, but I couldn't help but think that the words were really, really powerful um, in light of thinking about the Christian leaders of the day. So I want to read you. It's a hymn. I want to read it to you because I am not singing it to you. <laughs> You'd be happy about that. In Christ alone my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, and my song. This Cornerstone, this solid ground that's firm th through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. And then bursting forth in glorious day, from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we can stand in your power. God, no matter what we face in life during this week, no matter what 
news has come our way or what events have unfolded before us, God, we are grateful that we can stand in you. Help us to remember that, no matter what. God, we're grateful for this time where we can gather together to be with one another and to be with you and your spirit. Ask that we feel it full in this place tonight. God, please help that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you're our rock and you are our redeemer. We love you so much. It's in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. All right. So we are in the book of Acts, like I've said. And last week we ended at Acts 18, verse 18. I'm just going to move this over here. Pace way too much. And so that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 18. Um, we're following the story of Paul. He is the main character of the book right now. In fact, kind of halfway through the book of Acts, kind of left the apostles, the original 11, because remember Judas bailed. So, and then they added one. So then there was 12, but it's very confusing, basically. But then one was killed and a couple more. So anyway, we don't know how many there are left, basically. But we've left the apostles behind, and we're now stuck with Paul. And we're following Paul because he is this missionary. And when I say missionary, he has a home church, and he leaves his home church, and he travels around, mostly in the area of of modern-day Turkey. And he goes to different cities, and he goes to the synagogues there, and he preaches, and he teaches the good news of Christ. And people either listen or they don't, and then he's run out of town, and he goes to the next place. But everywhere he goes, he starts what we call now the church, but it's this notion that there's this group of disciples that, that... become believers, and then gather together and meet together and stay and support each other in the faith, no matter what. And so everywhere he goes, he kind of creates these groups. And so that's what the church is. I mean, it's not, he doesn't build a building like this at all. He just creates these communities where people support each other in the faith. And so that is what it means to be a missionary. I mean, that is what he does, and that is his mission, if you will. And so he has gone on one missionary journey that he kind of goes around and he starts churches. And then he goes back to his home church. And then he's like, hey, I'm kind of bored. Let's go back to those churches that I started and let's see how they're doing. Oh, and then by the way, we'll go to these other places and start some more churches. And so then he does that. And we are, where we're going to pick up is kind of right at the tail end. Um, he spent a lot of time in um, a very, in Corinth, if you will. And... Um, which is a a big city in that area. He spent a lot of time there, and he's founded the church, and he's gotten it established. And so we pick up in verse 18. After staying there in Corinth for a considerable time, getting the church established and everything going, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by some friends, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, at Centria, He had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but first he himself went into the synagogue and had a discussion with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay longer, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, Well, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up into Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place through the regions of Galatia and 
Phrygia, I can never say that word, strengthening all the disciples. So let's stop there. Basically, what we have here is the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third. And it happens so quick, which is a really actually interesting point. So he stays in, he leaves Corinth, which was a big city, and he goes back to Syria. He goes back to his home church, and he's accompanied by his friends. He lands at, um, at uh, Centria, and that is a port city. It's like the harbor, if you will, and he has his hair cut for he's under a vow. And this is like such a random thing to have included in this story. But, and we're not really sure exactly what vow he was under, but um, it was most likely the vow was of a Nazarite. Um, and that was similar to Samson, if you remember. Um, there's no stories of Paul having like magic powers from his hair, though, so we're okay with that. And it's okay that he actually gets his hair cut because there's some distinction in that vow. I mean, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. You're supposed to you know, be very careful about what you wear and how you, what you eat. Um, and you're not supposed to shave your head. So the idea maybe is that he's getting a haircut because he has long hair because he's never shaved his head. Um, so that's why they think the vow is probably, is a, probably a Nazarite vow. Um, anyway, but all we know is he's headed home and he's kind of getting groomed up. You know, you can just imagine like being on the road for a really long time, like camping or something and walking around and it's dusty and you stay at people's houses and, you know, who knows what kind of care they could take of you. And so you're on your way home and it's like, all right, got to get cleaned up here. And so they reach Ephesus, which is one of the largest cities in the area. And he leaves his friends there, but he goes himself to the synagogue. Now, for those of you who have been a part of this study, you know this is literally like word for word what he does in every city. He goes to the synagogue and he talks to the Jews there. The only difference is there's no like debating and like they don't run him out of town. In fact, they ask him to stay. We really don't know the context. I mean, we assume it's because they kind of like what he's saying. So they asked him to say, but he's like, look, I got to go back. I got to check in with the mother church, and then I'll come back to you if it's, if it's uh, willed by God, of course. So he sets sail from Ephesus, and he lands at Caesarea, and he goes up to Jerusalem, and he greets the church there. And what's important here to note is that when the church started, when the Christian, you know, the followers of Christ started, they started in Jerusalem. That was the home base. In fact, that's still the home base if you look at it from like an apostolic viewpoint, from an apostle viewpoint. That's where all the apostles are, are in Jerusalem. And they still kind of have a lot of the church leadership is there. And so there's still this sense that no matter where, you know, the church has spread, decisions and kind of all roads lead back to that center point. That's kind of the home base of the church. But... He goes there for such a short time. I mean, literally, it's like half of a sentence that he goes back to Jerusalem because then he goes back to Antioch. Now, Antioch is his home church. That's kind of the church, you know, that sent him on his way, that from which he started his missionary journeys. And so what we realize then is that Antioch really becomes more of a center for Paul's journeys and for Paul's mission. So really, in the second half of the book of Acts, Antioch has been that that base, that center. But then, of course, we have that as only half a sentence because after spending some time there, he departs and he goes from place to place and he teaches. And so that is Paul ending the second missionary journey and starting his third missionary journey. So let's pick up in verse 24. Now, and it's kind of like a little scene, like flashback. Okay, meanwhile, there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. 
He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, even though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those who through grace had become believers, for he was powerfully refuted, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. Now, this is actually a really funny story kind of for Luke to include in this part of the book because Paul is not a part of the story at all. And it's very clear that the author wants to make Paul's, I mean, this is about Paul. This whole section of the book is about Paul. So the fact that Paul isn't here means that there's a reason that this author included it that is maybe more important than having to have a story with Paul in it. Does that make sense? So it's important, this story... It means, like, pay attention, basically, because Paul's not in this, so why is it, what is it even doing here? But there's something, there's a reason for it, so we should pay attention. Okay, so a Jew, remember, and this just, remember, Jew equals Christian, I mean, in a lot of ways, Jews are Christians. Do you get what I'm saying? So this, in this case, he's a Jewish Christian, Um, but it does mean that he's not a Gentile Christian. So it links kind of the the tradition that he comes from, the past that he comes from, Um, very, so you know, again, the context in which he's, where he's from and kind of in which he's ministering. So he's from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was a huge city, it's, I mean, in Egypt, and it was, I mean, it was like the, I don't know, it was like New York is to, I don't know, Pecan Gap, Texas. I mean, it was like, like if you wanted to go to the center of the world and you wanted to learn and you wanted to study and you wanted to be exposed to culture and you wanted to, you know, where all like roads kind of cross, I mean, you went to Alexandria. This is like a huge, powerful, influential city that there were so many learned people. I mean, you know, you thought Athens was impressive. Like Alexandria was so crazy. It was also the home for a, a huge Jewish population. When, um, when they had to leave Israel back in the day, a long time ago, a lot of Jews actually settled in Alexandria. And so you have this whole, it's, they're called the diaspora Jews. They, they're, they're Jews, but they're not, they're away from the homeland, kind of the Jewish, the promised land, if you will. So they're called diaspora Jews, and there's this whole community of, there, of them. So it makes sense that this guy, this Jewish person, who now we know kind of is in context as a Jewish Christian, came from Alexandria, and he's eloquent, and he's well-versed in scriptures. He's very learned. learned. He knows what he's talking about. He had all this training because he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and the way is kind of a Lucan euphemism for the community. You know, he's been instructed in the community of, Christian, of Christianity, like the Christian community. Um, so he knows He knows the Christian community. He's connected. He knows what he's talking about here. He spoke with burning enthusiasm, and he spoke accurately about things concerning Jesus, um, even though he only knew the baptism of John. Now, we're actually going to read in the next few verses uh, more specifically what that means. So just go with me here. So he begins to speak boldly, and of course, Priscilla and Aquila, remember, Paul leaves them behind in Ephesus? Well, they hear him. 
So they're, remember, they're Christian, Jewish Christians as well. So they all go to the synagogue, like good Jews, Jewish Christians do. So they're in the synagogue, and they hear him preaching, and they're like, wow, he's pretty good. He's got some potential. And he speaks accurately, but they need to teach him more accurately. And that's like such an interesting little nuance there. And it has to do, again, with the fact that he's not been baptized. He's been baptized only with the baptism of John. And so they, they bring him in, and they explain to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And he gets so excited, and so he wants to go to this... Um, um, Achaia is, is kind of the region in Greece, and it's like really, kind of we talked about it last time, and it's, I mean, it's a really active, powerful, popular region as well. And so he wants to go there, and he wants to teach. And there's, we get a sense that the church is connected, even though they're far apart, because the church writes to the other church. You know, they write on his behalf, and they encourage the other church to support him. And so we see, like, um, evidence of a connective network of believers and of churches there. And uh, what does he do? Well, he really shows the Jews. He refutes the Jews in public. And he uses the scriptures to show that the Messiah is Jesus. Because remember, that's the issue. That's what the Jews who don't believe believe. Wait, no. That's what the Jews who don't believe struggle with. The fact that the Messiah is Jesus. And the, the order of that is really important. Because the concern at this point is not who is Jesus. Nobody cares who Jesus is. The concern that the Jews have is who is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? And so it's the fact that the Messiah, well, it's this guy named Jesus. And that's what, the, that's what Paul is teaching, and that's what Apollos is teaching. That's what the mission of the church right now is, is to show anybody who has been expecting the Messiah that the Messiah has actually come, the Messiah is Jesus. So this guy, Apollos, he never really meets Paul. They kind of pass like ships in the night. Um, And the interesting thing, though, is in 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul writes, he actually refers to Apollos. So this is a little discrepancy then in the story that we have here in Luke's version of Acts and the life of Paul versus what Paul writes in some of the letters that we have of his. So um, that's just an interesting note. You can like circle it and just be like, question mark, what? Who knows what? And um, we'll just move on. Okay, chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became a believer? And they replied, "Uh, no, we haven't even heard of that, if there is a Holy Spirit. And then he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they answered, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, oh. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. And when some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Then this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So what we have here is this really um, 
this really kind of overarching theme that's very important to this author. Um, what we have is kind of a point that how one understands and articulates one's faith is really important. Um, there needs to be some regularity when it comes to how you understand and articulate your faith. And that's why instructing Apollos was so important to Aquila and Priscilla. Because it was important that he articulated it absolutely correctly and that he understood it absolutely correctly. And so they had to give, they had to make sure that the context in which he had faith was accurate. And the context in which he had faith, if you remember, was just the baptism of John. And as Paul goes to back to Ephesus, remember, as God, if God wills it, I will return to you. And he goes, he does, apparently. And so he goes back to Ephesus, and he goes and he finds some disciples there. Now, most of the time, the word disciples refers to disciples of Christ, Jesus' disciples, not like disciples of Christ, the church denomination today. Um, but in this case, because of the context here, we actually should probably understand these as disciples of John. Now, this is really interesting because Jesus and John actually had two kind of distinct groups of disciples. They had two distinct groups of followers. But it was really important for this author, and, you know, you could see why, to make sure that they were united, that 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 John's mission was not actually separate from Jesus' mission. It was the precursor to Jesus' mission. And so to, if you had these two different groups, maybe kind of that you saw brewing, it would be really important for you to kind of remind everyone that they were aligned and that were actually really part of the same mission of God in this world. Like John did not have a separate mission from Jesus. John's mission actually was to prepare the way for Jesus. So it was really important then for this author to bring and portray and show that even though they were maybe two different groups of disciples, they really needed to be the one body in Christ. And like I said, there needed to be, things just needed to be regularized, regularized. I mean, there just needed to be this across the board, no matter where you are, no matter where you come from, like this is how you understand what it means to be a Christian. And what that encountered included is to know the Holy Spirit and to be baptized in Jesus' name. That, those were some of those foundational across the board, this is what it means to be a Christian. And so this is what he says. He says, you know, he encounters these folks, and they're like, he's like, hey, do you got the Holy Spirit? And they're like, who's that? He's like, then what were you baptized into if you don't have the Holy Spirit? And they're like, well, into John's baptism. And the funny thing is there, and this is just a little silly, is that John actually we have from Luke, the earlier gospel, remember, before he was even born, John is full of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like, well, I mean, John was full of the Holy Spirit, so why wouldn't they have ever heard of the Holy Spirit? We don't know. But they just don't ha have never heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul kind of explains, and he says, well, look, John's baptism was one of repentance. And that's what John did. He said, come and repent, be baptized. But he said, I am not even... You know, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you with fire. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And so John never baptized people in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. He baptized in repentance, anticipating the coming of Christ, in which they would then be baptized in Christ's name and with the Holy Spirit. And so the situation, again, is that there's these two kind of maybe slightly different groups, slightly different ways of understanding and having this context of faith in 
Christ because if they were disciples of John, they would have known who Christ was, who Jesus was. So, but you, it was just a slightly different context. And it was so important to Paul, but also to this author, to remind everybody that, okay, we got to get some things to, that are just uniform across the board, where no matter where you come from, no matter what your you know, context is now, we need to give you this new context. And the new context is baptism in Jesus' name and power of the Holy Spirit. And so he does that. Um, a lot of people, you know, there's arguments about... Uh, baptism and rebaptism. Some churches believe that you need to be rebaptized. The Methodist Church does not. And when you look at the ministry of Apollos, you know he was baptized in um, the baptism with John, but a Priscilla and Aquila don't rebaptize him. They just explain more accurately to him the way of the Lord. When it comes to these folks over here that Paul encounters, he decides that you know they were never baptized in the name of the Lord, in the name of Christ. So he is so baptize him in the name of Christ is not a rebaptism. I just wanted to point that out. It's baptism for the first time in Jesus' name. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied, just like kind of it's a it's it reveals, it's very parallel to the way that the Holy Spirit has come upon people earlier in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit would come upon people, they would speak in tongues. And that's speaking in the language of the Spirit. It's not, you know, speaking different languages. It's just speaking a language of the Spirit. And prophesying isn't like telling the future. It's, um, it's kind of being full of speaking with inspiration from the Spirit. So however the Spirit will inspire you to speak, that's kind of what it means when it, we say the word prophesy there. And of course, altogether there are 12 of them. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> so, so we have this like very symbolic moment here in Ephesus where Paul baptizes these group, this group of disciples in Christ's name. They receive the Holy Spirit. They, start, they have all the signs of receiving the Holy Spirit that all the original apostles have, and there's 12 of them. And so what happens, in my opinion, when you read this story is all of a sudden again, the, the, the center shifts. It shifts from Jerusalem. It went to Antioch with Paul. But all of a sudden now it's landed here in Ephesus. And he stays there for two years. And from his teaching there, from the church there, all of Asia hears about the way of the Lord. All, and that just means like everywhere, everywhere east hears of the way of the Lord. Because from that place, it just spreads like crazy. And so Ephesus becomes then the center of the missionary activity of the church. And that's, that's kind of when it happens. So it's really, it's really powerful. And, of course, he enters the synagogue. This is like a broken record. I mean, every night we talk about him entering a synagogue. And he teaches for three months, and he speaks out boldly, of course, and he argues persuasively because you can't, you know, you've got to argue about it, too. And um, some believe, but then some are really stubborn and they don't believe. And they start saying really evil things. So then he's like, all right, I'm out of here. And so he leaves and he takes the disciples with him. And he goes and he teaches in this random lecture hall. And we don't know who this guy is or why he has a lecture hall. But he has a lecture hall and Paul goes in it. And it's like, this is kind of what you would do. You like rent a lecture hall and that's where you like speak and teach. It's like, it's like this room in the church. <laughs> I've like rented it for the night and I'm just going to speak. And whoever shows up is going to hear what I say. I mean, and that's kind of the deal. That was a practice back then. So Paul rents this random lecture hall, and from there he speaks. And he, he argues there daily, of course, and this continues for two years. Like I said, two years. And because of his argument, and because of his teaching, and because of, quite honestly, the Holy Spirit, the good news spreads. 
So let's end there. I can't really see what time it is, so I'm sorry for a few minutes over because there's a glare, but, um, but I know that it's close. So let's end there. Um, and I just, I, I mean, I want you to think about the fact that he's a place for two years, and all of Asia hears this news. And I was reading that, and I was like, okay, what to me that kind of, what I can read from that is that things take time, <laughs> you know? To make, do something well, to really establish something, it takes time. Even the word of the Lord, which is like the summary language for like the entire Christian message. That just can take time. But it's worth it to Paul to invest this time in this place. And we're here today because of that. And so it's powerful when you think about you know, friends that you have or the ability to witness or the ability to talk about this or, you know, the role of the church and the role that the church should play in our society today. I mean, it may take time, but it's worth it because the more that people hear the good news of God, the more that God's kingdom can be on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, let's pray. God, we do uh, pray that your kingdom will continue to spread on earth as it is in heaven. We humbly ask to be a part of that, however we can. God, we are so thankful for your love, which makes all of this possible, and for your spirit, which guides us in everything that we do. God, I pray this week that we feel your spirit guiding us at work, at home, with friends, with family. No matter what we face, I pray that we lean into you because we know that you have gone before, truly, even to death, and that you also walk beside us so that we're not alone. God, we pray for those who could not be with us tonight. We ask for safety in our travel and in our waking and in our sleeping. God, we love you so much. In the name of your Son, God, and God,